morning and welcome into the Daniel Ortman Show. It is Daniel Ortman coming to you live from the Dream Imaginate Sports Studios. It is Tuesday, August the 27th. Thanks for tuning in. New showtime, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. A little bit earlier. If you're watching this on the West Coast, you are a hero um, watching it live. I mean, you can always go back and watch it, but uh, to watch it live, yeah, hero. Thanks for tuning in. Um, if you want to go back and watch any of these episodes, one easy way to do that is to go to our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash WRKMN. That's just my last name without any vowels. W-R-K-M-N, facebook.com forward slash W-R-K-M-N. And you can go and watch uh, you know, any of these episodes now that we're, we're launching here in our fall season. This is episode two here in the fall season. So thanks for tuning in. Um, today, uh, there's a meeting taking place and... Um, that meeting is is taking place as we speak. It may already even be done. And the meeting that I'm referring to is the meeting between PSG and Barcelona. And that meeting is to discuss the transfer of Neymar back to Barcelona. And uh, it's the big transfer that everyone has been following this during this window. Um an update I saw uh, a little while ago is that Neymar has made it clear to PSG he does not want to go to Real Madrid as a Barcelona supporter. That news in and of itself uh, is welcome news. Um, but uh, I, I hope a deal is struck. I am in favor of this deal. I feel like um, there has never been a better front three than uh, Messi, Suarez, and Neymar a few years ago. And to get the Trident back together, um, I think is very important. I think it's something that uh, Barcelona have been trying to to do ever since Neymar left. And uh, Coutinho, Dembele, neither one uh, has been able to, to really fit uh, as an 11 in Barca's front three to make it work. And um, I think the the humiliation of not only losing, but the way they lost to Liverpool um, in in the spring in the Champions League semifinal, and and going up against uh, a club that that Dow has the best front three in the world, I think has uh, provided some extra motivation to the leadership of the club. Uh, to get this deal done, uh, say what you want about Neymar. His his on the field antics, his you know you may not like the way he handles himself. Set all of that aside. If you just look at the player and uh, and the talent when he's on the field and the way that he plays, and and if you remember back to the way he played in 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 complimenting Messi and Suarez. Um, there's not a there's not a better number eleven uh, to to fit in that spot. Uh, he, he would be an instant upgrade over anyone at Barcelona right now. Um, 
And and the only the only other player that I think would would help Barcelona uh, that doesn't have the skill set of Neymar, but is a very dangerous player and and I think would help Barcelona in some ways, might even help Barcelona better than Neymar because of some of the other things he's able to do off the ball, defensively helping out, is Mane, who is at Liverpool, um, who who would be a, a great fit as an 11 in a front three at Barcelona as well. Outside of those those two, there, there's, there's no one that really just stands out as really complimentary to to the way Barcelona um, tries to play. And, you know, those of us who love positional play um, and, and positional play and, and definitely uh, believe in the, in the Cruyff, uh, Pep Guardiola, um, you know, way of, of thinking – and and one name that 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 often gets left out, and it was because his tenure was very short. And God rest his soul, um, Tito Villanova, but he carried that on as well. And I, I think he he's often left out of this conversation, and I don't think I don't think he should be. Um, those managers have a philosophy of positional play, and uh, since those managers have gone. Uh, whether it's Tata, Luis Enrique, uh, Valverde, uh, that positional play in 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 the way that Barcelona's identity has been um, for a long time has has started eroding, and you can see it. You can see that there there are struggles when Messi's not on the field because he's such a difference maker, and um, and and Valverde has enough talent. Uh, if they were if they were uh, coached in the right way, in my opinion, to to be more successful without Messi, um, but if you're going to remain in that mentality, um, having another weapon like a Neymar to me makes a lot of sense. And uh, so we'll we'll see if the deal gets done. Uh, there's rumors of a of a loan deal. Um, you know, with with a mandatory option to buy next summer, which is basically allowing uh, Barcelona to put Neymar uh, basically on layaway. Uh, you know, we're we're gonna basically uh, put him on layaway for for this season. We're gonna we're gonna make some payments, but we can't pay the transfer fee until next summer, and we'll figure out the financing on our end that gives us you know nine ten months to get that together. And uh, and then we and then we'll sell him uh, or we'll buy him and and you'll have your your sell and and so they're negotiating a price and they're trying to figure these things out etc. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, don't know, uh, but uh, that's the big transfer. Um, and you know the window's winding up uh, over the next few days. Barcelona's feeling the pressure to get this done. PSG are sitting pretty in terms of. Um, you know, the negotiations, you know, everyone knows that Neymar wants to leave uh, and that PSG want him to leave, but PSG do, do not uh, have the pressure to make it happen. If the, if the if they don't get a deal that they like, they can, you know, the window can close and Neymar's going to have to play and, and Neymar will be a professional and he'll play and 
and they'll revisit this in in January or or more than likely uh, you know next June July. So. I, I think all of the pressure is on Barcelona. Barcelona has painted themselves into a corner. Um, they've tried to, to, to play hardball all summer with PSG and, you know, claiming that, they, that they're not going to pay this or they're not going to include this player, or this player, um, you know, and, and so we'll see, you know, there's, there's all kinds of rumors about what players would be included, um, if any, uh, and, and it's bounced all around. You, you, you've heard names like Dembele. You've heard names like Semedo. Um, and, and at one point or another, Barcelona has said that these players are untouchable. Um, we'll see. You know, when you're negotiating, you never know. Barcelona, for sure, you never know. So, um, you know, we'll just have to follow follow along and, and find out. So, um you know, one of the one of the things uh, in terms of of our show this week, especially, but over the weeks to come, we're going to have some some new segments, some new clips, etc. Uh, today, we are, we are going to have an interview when we come back from the break uh, of a coach um, that I met while we were in Europe, and uh, when I got back, I was able to record a, a uh, an interview with him, and and to kind of pick his brain about player development um, and he is uh, just uh, moved uh, down under to New Zealand um, and uh, so we we right before he moved uh, from the Netherlands down to New Zealand we were able to, uh, to to line up an interview with him and to to pick his brain about coaching methodology about player development uh, putting teams together uh, etc and I think it's going to be a really really insightful interview for you to uh, to, to listen to um, and his name is Michel Burzma and I, I'm sure I butchered his name uh, but uh, the the the, the um, you know pronouncing his name but I, I'm trying I, I do not speak uh, Dutch at all. Um, and, and so, uh, he was, he was gracious enough to spend some time with us and, and to talk through the game and in the way he, that he sees the game, including his playing experience and background and so on and so forth. So, uh, hope you enjoy it. Our sponsor, uh, this half hour, is uh is ductic brand and they they provide really cool uh products and uh, one of the things they have are are these cards and um i don't know if you can see them because it's a, it's a it's a little uh little bright in here in in the studio but i'll try to hold it up to this camera here and you can see these these flash cards um if you're a coach and you're coaching a team Keep a stack of these things in your back pocket because you never know. You might be at a halftime. You might have a player come out and you can pull one of these things things out and whip out, you know, a diagram really quickly for a player on the sideline in the in the heat of the moment um, in a way that uh, you can hold in your hand, show them, communicate, etc. Their their products like this are amazing. They're amazing tools and resources. Check them out. And uh, when you place an order. Use the promo code DW Show again. That is DW Show to get ten percent off of your next order, and um, they'll be happy you did, and you will be more importantly happy that you did. So um, 
like I said, when we come back from break, we will have this interview with Michel, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, we'll be back after the interview to wrap up the show and talk about some of the craziness going on in MLS. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in today. We are pleased to be joined by Michel Bursma, and he is an academy coach uh, from the Netherlands. Uh, Michel, uh, how are you today? And welcome to the show. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for, uh, for having me. I'm fine. Uh, how are you? Doing quite well. Um, we met on a recent trip to Europe and... Um, yeah, I was telling you before we started recording this interview that uh, we were trying to get some things back together in the studio from our trip. Uh, I had some gear blow up uh, on the trip, and um, so it it kind of put the kibosh on uh, doing the show live from Europe as we had anticipated. I had to ship a bunch of gear back and, uh, and kind of regather the troops there, uh, but we are getting everything back together and uh are excited to to have the show kicking back off uh with our fall season this week so thanks for for spending some time with us um you're welcome thanks for having me so so give us a little bit of your your background your story um you know you're from the netherlands what what was your playing career like uh growing up there in in holland sure sure yeah well uh my my playing career isn't a very big one. I've uh, I started playing soccer when I was like seven. I think the World Cup of '98 was going on at that moment, and that got me into it. And uh, while I was playing for some amateur clubs here in uh, in the Netherlands, I uh, I started coaching early. I think I started coaching when I was like 14 years old. And uh, in the Netherlands, it's normal that. Well, when you start coaching, you're a volunteer at an amateur club. Uh, you coach a bunch of kids, and uh, that's exactly what I did, and uh, and I really liked it. So from uh, from coaching uh, the amateur club, I got asked uh, by a professional club to uh, to join them uh, first, also as a volunteer and helping them 
run the development program as a as, as a coach. And uh, the club was uh, was Cambuur in uh, in my hometown in in Leeuwarden. And from from there, I uh, I actually uh, have been growing into the organization. Uh, eventually, I became an academy coach. Uh, I became uh, the head of the youth scouting department and the head of the youth development program to all the younger pro all the younger uh, younger teams. And uh, we uh, we cooperated during that period of time as well with another professional club in the Netherlands, which is FC Groningen. So I also uh, learned a lot uh, there. And after my um, uh, my contract expired, I um, I went to um, to coach in another amateur club. In the time I had in between my two jobs in uh, in the Netherlands, that was at at Blauwit, and. Um, yeah, after that I, uh, I moved to the United States. I coached at uh, Houston Dutch Lions, where uh, where I also became the uh, the manager of coaching uh, while while I was there. So um, after I left Houston, I went to Barcelona, Spain, to study. I uh, I studied uh, a master in high performance coaching over there at uh, at, uh, at Barcelona, close to the the, the Camp Nou Stadium. And uh, in Barcelona, I got to know uh, some more people, and I worked at the Tovo Academy uh, with uh, with Todd Bean. Uh, after that, I, I moved to the Cayman Islands, and at the Cayman Islands, I, I was involved at uh, at, a, at a club that's called Total Soccer, um, who is doing an amazing job over there in uh, in in coaching the, the the younger kids on island. And uh, yeah, right now I'm I'm in between jobs, and uh, I'm uh, I'm heading to uh, to New Zealand next week uh, to become uh, the head of coaching methodology there uh, at Christchurch United. And in that time, in between, I uh, I met you in Copenhagen uh, because uh, with uh, with Joe last he did uh, we did a tournament there, and I coached uh, one of the teams that uh, that Joga had uh, over there in Denmark. So, so yeah, I want to I want to back up real quick before we get into some of that that coaching resume that you have. You said that you you got into coaching at fourteen. What drew you to coaching at fourteen? What got you more interested in coaching at fourteen than pursuing, you know, a playing career? What what, what kind of flipped that switch on for you? Well, actually, it was my dad. My dad asked me when I was uh, when I was that age if if I would like to help him uh, to coach uh, because he was uh, he was a coach for uh, for 11s uh, for for years already, and he asked me because he thought that I would might like it as well. So I thought about it a couple of days, and then I said yes. And and yeah, from there on, from from that moment on, it uh, well, it actually flowed from there. So. Uh, he saw that he saw that right at that moment so what about coaching you know just connects with you and and has has driven you to to chase the game or literally around the world what is it about coaching that that inspires you that you enjoy so much uh, the, the, the thing i enjoy so much is helping players um it, it was never my intention to uh, to 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 go over over the globe. Uh, I've, I've never thought I would see that many places 
I've seen at the moment. But the the thing is like uh, right now in, as well. I'm in between jobs, and I, uh, I I I really long to be on that field again because uh, I, I I really love to to share. Uh, an idea, but also to get to know the players better in order to establish what uh, what it is that they can actually use uh, to um, to develop into that next level that might be there, and that whole uh, the whole ex- ex- the whole exploring experience of potential within players. Uh, working together with players in, in in what they actually know already and what they want to learn and, and how I can uh, can help them a little bit with that. Uh, that inspires me every single day. Now you mentioned that uh, you your next post uh, or, or or in in this case outpost is in Christchurch, New Zealand. <laughs> Uh, with Christchurch United coaching methodology, uh, what yeah. is, what is your philosophy it, when you when you're talking to coaches and you're coaching teams yourself? What philosophy do you ascribe to? What what do you want teams to? How do you want teams to play? And and what are you trying to do in terms of individual player development in order to prepare players to play in that philosophy? Uh, I, I think it's a very, very uh, that that question has a lot of different levels uh, in it for me because um, I, I can I can speak for myself like if uh, for example with yoga uh, when Catherine asked me to uh, join uh, we had a little conversation about uh, the way we uh, we look at the game and um, if 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 we talk about like an associative style of 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 play then uh then that that would be something that i could contribute with uh at uh, a different level so uh, if if we look at my game model in general then uh, then it's based well i actually it's because it's pretty offensive uh, uh pretty associative position play has a has a big uh big role in in in, in that game model um on the other hand um uh, if I join a team, that team has uh, has a has a history. Uh, all the individual players have history of themselves, and they also have an opinion of themselves about how they can express themselves best uh, on that on that field. So, at first, all right, I have my game model and I have principles of play which I find very important. But at first, it is very important, I think, to uh, look at. Where is the team at the moment? Where am I? And where can we find common ground in order to um, uh, establish a starting starting point to uh, to work from there and to actually work uh, into the same direction without um, losing the good things that all that are already there and uh, adding some stuff that might help uh, the development into the right direction for everybody uh, involved and it's the same in Christchurch I think I think it would be uh, very coincidental if my game plan the way I look at the game if that's exactly uh, suitable for the situation the culture the coaches that are already there the players that are already there so for me at first it's very important to uh, to listen to um, to look at the situation, to talk to coaches, to talk at people involved with the club, not only the football players, uh, but also the uh, the the uh, the people around uh, around the club, uh, 
the culture in general. And uh, I think if uh, if together with all the people there, we can fill uh, that content again within the structure that I use in order to build uh, an identity for a club or for a player or for a coach, we can uh, accomplish way more than if I just go out there and say like, hey, I'm from the Netherlands, um, we invented football and this is how we do it. So for me, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's actually the same as it would be with, uh, with a team. Uh, first, we need to check what is already there. We need to have a look at, into the players uh, and in this case, also the coaches. Uh, what do we know already? What do we believe? What do we think is, 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 is the way we understand football, the way we have to play football? And if we start from there and we can connect, that's the moment that we really can uh, accomplish something that uh, will last as well uh, over uh, a, a larger period of time. Now, did I answer the question a little bit? Absolutely, absolutely. So, when when you are are setting up, uh, in this case, teams in a club with coaches, methodology uh, is that methodology a oral transfer of philosophy, or do you actually sit down and and, and produce written content, video graphics? How how do how how do you try to educate and train your coaches in this uh, club-wide philosophy or qu- club-wide methodology that you are trying to, you know, to achieve uh, in this case uh, at Christchurch United? Yeah, uh, it's going to be a combination of those things. I think uh, if uh, the moment I'll arrive there, the uh, upcoming Tuesday. Uh, First thing I need to to do is uh, establish where we're at, and in order to establish where we're at, probably some coaches will have written something down about their philosophy. Other coaches won't uh, do that because it's not their style. Uh, eventually, we have to um, uh, to um, create something uh, that will be um, something that uh, that will be a little bit of mine, a little bit of my colleagues, uh, but also uh, the board and the club owner have to uh, have a say in that as well. Because eventually, if you want to uh, to, to to have like the, the game plan, if that has if that's a part of the bigger picture, uh, it will last longer for the players, for the coaches, for the club uh, to achieve what you want to achieve eventually. I mean, if, um, if, if we want to, um, to be a club that draws the community in Christchurch to us uh, because we are a positive club, which is a value, for example, then uh, we need to also express that positivity on the field. And the moment we all establish that that's a value of the club, which is very interesting to work with, we have to make sure that we can fit it into a principle of play which shows us positivity on the field, which could be we want to have the ball because we'll be in control, and if we are in control and we have the ball, we can create something which is positive. So a principle of play would be that we rather have the ball uh, instead of the opponent having it. And from that principle of play on, you can build on into... um, 
in, into very specific details of the game that you want to practice with your teams in order to show that value of the club. So for me, it's very important to, uh, to look at the bigger picture first and also to have that bigger picture clear to me because I'm the one who is coming from abroad and uh, the people who are already there have way more knowledge about how things are being done in that club culture at the moment. When when you walk into a situation like this, and you've been in other situations in, in Houston, uh, you've been in clubs uh, across the world and, and done work. Uh, how important is it for for a club to have a club wide philosophy, principles of play, versus basically? allowing coaches to kind of just do their own thing. How important is it to, to have a, a big idea, big philosophy? I understand each team may have some, some little nuances or little tweaks or whatever, but, but having a, a club wide philosophy and principles of play, how, how, how important do you think that is for a club? I, I think it's very important, uh, but especially it is important to have the balance because uh, you hire coaches for a reason and coaches who have been hired can add something to your club specifically. So they need some uh, freedom uh, in order to express themselves again as well. But they also need a framework within uh, where, within they can work. Like if you have the framework uh, which gives them direction, then within the framework they can work limitless. Uh, limitless. So it is very important to have that framework in order to make sure that everybody is going to end up at the same page after uh, a period of time. And that's also something that uh, I've, I've worked at many clubs before, but uh, I, I I haven't always worked like this because uh, sometimes uh, experience is is something that that will come over the years. For example, when I when I when I worked at, at another club in the past, uh, I was the one who had a philosophy about uh, football. I was an academy uh, academy coach, and as an academy coach, I just pushed through my idea of play to my team, but also a little bit to my colleagues. And the moment I left, that was all gone again because it wasn't. Uh, um, based on the culture of the environment it wasn't based on the culture of the country it wasn't based on the culture and the history of the people I worked with so I I obviously only saw this the moment I left because the moment I left it was too late to change it anymore and I think if, if there's a framework at all coaches will do whatever they think is best for uh, for the teams but if every coach has uh, a different direction, it might not work together that well. So that framework, which a club has to provide eventually, but also has to come with, from within, uh, is, is exactly that balance that I'm talking about. So that balance between having a freedom to be yourself as a coach within the framework that the club uh, provides you would be a situation where, uh, where you meet the best of two worlds, I think. Now, now you've worked in clubs around the world, and you've spent some time in the U.S. And I, I just want to ask you: and you, you recently, where, where you and I met in uh, in Denmark, 
uh, we're working with Amer- some American players uh, with Joga and in uh, yeah. Kefren Fuller's program. So uh, I I, I want to get your thoughts on the American player versus say a a Dutch player um, if they're you know eight nine ten eleven twelve I mean you know they're a youth player. What are some of the similarities that you see between a Dutch player at, at that, at those ages and an American player. And then also I'm curious, where do you start to see the, the differences and in, and are those differences positive or negative? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, uh, we, we've seen, uh, Catherine, his son, right. Uh, playing there in Denmark as well, his four year old kid. He uh, he was just kicking a ball around when the boys were practicing, and uh, when I see that, Catherine's uh, boy is raised in the Netherlands. Uh, he's four years old, but he can kick a ball properly, and um, that that technical skill is something that he already uh, developed at a very young age because he's kicking a ball every day, and. Um, if we look at uh, at American young American players who first start to uh, to play uh, soccer, they come they they show up at the club and they also need to learn how to uh, how to handle the ball first. So I think a difference between, for example, players in the Netherlands and players in uh, in the U.S. is that players in the Netherlands are already exposed to uh, to soccer on a very a very young age in a playful way, where they already learn some uh, basic techniques in order to play the game uh, easier. Uh, when they start playing uh, organized sports. Um, I also think that may be a reason that the moment uh, European kids uh, in general or Dutch kids in uh, in particular are able to uh, play the game So I lost you for for a minute. Uh, you you yeah, you said we lost some connection. Yeah. So you said um, at uh, European players and Dutch players in particular, and then you went out. So if you want to kind of pick back ah. up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So European European players and uh, in general and Dutch players in in particular, uh, they uh, they already developed their technique in a playful way in a very young age. Which also uh, makes that when they join uh, the the game uh, in an organized way, they already are able to, uh, to to play the game properly from a very young age on. Which makes um, 
which which makes the game development, which is just like a, a regular four v four or a six v six, easier, and because of the the level of all the players in 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 Europe, uh, they will provide uh, an environment where they have to um, they have to develop themselves because time and space is something that are going to be taken away pretty quickly on an early age already. So if I if I compare that to uh, to teams in 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 the United States, uh, the main difference for me uh, might not always be the training, but especially the competitive games in the weekends. Because if an American uh, American game is played, most of the times there uh, there are a lot of spaces available in uh, in midfield, and in sim- similar. Uh, European games, that space in midfield is taken away already. I think in Denmark, we we also saw a difference in uh, in in in, uh, in level within the tournament, where uh, when we were watching the uh, the higher level uh, teams play, it was way more compact than uh, than the lower level teams. And the moment you are forced as a player to play in uh, tight spaces every single week. You have to develop your skill set. You have to develop your uh, understanding of the game in order to survive. And no matter what training you will uh, you will connect to that, you will have to do it in the weekends anyway. So you are exposed to that kind of challenge uh, every single week. Because, for example, yesterday I was in uh, uh, I was watching some some training sessions here in uh, in the Netherlands, and also there I see a lot of. Um, uh, Unopposed training, uh, where uh, players uh, need to do drills, they don't really understand. Uh, in order to, um, they they don't really know why they are doing it. So you can tell by their uh, execution that they are not, uh, they are not in it for one hundred percent. So the moment you look at the U- United States. I also watched a lot of practices there, especially in the Texas area. Uh, that was unopposed and uh, uninspiring to me. So, the moment uh, you start to connect the, uh, the higher level of play in Europe with uh, training sessions that inspire the kids, uh, you will get to a maximum uh, level of youth development, I guess. And in the United States, I think uh, if we start to uh, to redesign our way we train, think about how the game is actually structured, how we understand the game, and um, we can uh, uh, we can teach the kids where to look at in certain situations in order to adjust their moves. They also find the necessity in order to uh, to become better skilled in order to perform those. Uh, uh, those actions that are required to solve the situations that are actually in front of you during the training session and the game. I think with yoga as well, the uh, the teams that are uh, that were in Europe and visited, they uh, they faced something else uh, during the tournament, and that made them realize as well that they uh, they had to. F- change their framework about how the game of football was played and how they um, uh, how they can actually train the up- upcoming months in order to uh, to master that kind of challenge for themselves. 
How important is the the intensity of a training environment to being able to maximize player development? But it depends as well on, on what kind of intensity we're, we're talking about. If we're just talking about physical intensity, I'm not very worried about the United States because uh, they, they are the mo- most, most American players are incredibly fit. But uh, we're also talking about like uh, intelligence, game intelligence, cognitive fitness. And um, I think uh, a challenging cognitive environment is something that uh, that may be uh, a key in order to um, to launch the uh, the player development in the in the specific game of of, uh, of football in in general. Because you can do a very intense training with a very high heart rate without thinking at all. If you're just uh, uh, sprinting all the time in order to uh, to get to the ball and kick it away, not a lot of thinking is necessary in order to perform that. And it is a high-intensity training. But the moment you want to play associative, you want to solve situations, you want to take into account where, to the, where the opponent is, uh, is located in order to find spaces on the field, how your teammates are going to adjust to that, what option would might be the, the option in order to get out of pressure. Uh, that kind of thinking and that kind of training will, uh, will actually demand a high cognitive intensity. And um, I think... Eventually, physical and cognitive intensity are both important for the game, but uh, one of both, one of the two is at the moment a little bit um, um, under challenged in, uh, in 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 some sessions. If if you are a player in the United States and and you you know you are kind of on an island right maybe you don't have a lot of players around you that uh, aspire to develop to a level that you aspire to Um, you know we look at for example uh, a Christian Pulisic who who had to leave the country to to really pursue environments that would help him become uh, the player that he is so far um, and and now making his debut for Chelsea Um, if you were a player say you're 10 11 12 you know years old here in the United States and you're wanting to to address the cognitive fitness piece that you're talking about how can you do that uh, in a in a you know isolated situation if you're you know training maybe maybe it's one on one with a trainer maybe it's by yourself how can you uh, as a player, work on cognitive fitness uh, by yourself. Uh, eventually, you need um, you, you you need a situation in which you are uh, forced to make decisions. So, uh, if we talk about uh, the game of of of, uh, of of football, soccer, we uh, we need teammates and opponents. So. For example, if you're a 12, 13 year old uh, kid in the United States at the moment, then it's important that you uh, you will learn what to look for in a game. And I think uh, there are uh, there are many uh, many programs that will offer that. I'm not sure if they're in the United States, but we've seen them in Europe, right? So if um, 
if you are willing to uh, to invest in your in yourself, the first thing you need to do is uh, you need to know what you're looking at yourself during uh, during trainings. I mean, you might have no influence on uh, what kind of training you uh, you will get from your coach, unless you have a coach who is open for your feedback, and you might uh, you might be able to talk to him and and, and ask for uh, cognitive demanding uh, uh, drills. Which 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 be positional plays, uh, rondos, um, uh, small sided games, uh, r- regular uh, games. Uh, during most sessions, a regular game is being offered at the end of practice. So, if you want to improve your decision making, you need to know what to look for. And in order to know what to look for, there might be uh, coaches who can uh, who can help you with uh, finding those cues in position play in uh, the game itself um, but I think you have to uh, to do a lot of research a lot of work yourself as well in order to get those cues and then be responsible enough to look for those cues in your own training sessions as well so instead of just uh, walking into a practice uh, without preparation of what you want to get out of that practice you need to prepare yourself like um, today it is very important for me to open up my body, the whole practice, uh, in order to see as much of the field as I can. Uh, the moment you step onto the field with that, and uh, you are going to go through a couple of drills which you don't know about yet, there will always be drills that you can actually train that. So it's actually, a, uh, you're asking a lot from a 12, 13 year old in order to uh, take his development into his own hand. But it is possible. So when when you're looking at developing a player, uh, what are what are some basic fundamental uh, aspects of development that you're trying to achieve in terms of that cognitive fitness? You just mentioned mm-hmm. you know, a player who's opening their body up to the entire field. Yeah. What are some other things that you're trying to in, to, to teach a player uh, in, in their development in terms of some core foundational building blocks to being a, a cognitively fit player? Yeah, it uh, also depends on, on the age and uh, experience level of the player, obviously. Um, the first thing I need to establish is what the player uh, already knows and what he wants. Because if uh, if a player doesn't want to uh, to learn the uh, position play uh, based game, then uh, other things might be more important than uh, than some basic rules of position play, like opening up, hit someone on the far leg, um, know where uh, the defenders are in order to know where space is. Uh, so so in order to establish what a player wants. Uh, First, I need to talk to him about what kind of position do you like to play and why. What uh, what are some things that were always uh, successful for you? What are things you are uh, struggling with? What are things you are, you really want to learn? Uh, which is very general. With uh, so so a kid a kid of any age can answer those questions, and a kid of any age uh, who is open to learn. Uh, and really wants to learn more about position play can learn about those uh, those basic fundamentals of uh, basic principles actually of, of position play uh, position play based football. Um, if players grow older, 
um, and are more experienced, um, there are like uh, uh, for 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 any position, uh, there are also different tactical demands. Uh, so, if if you know what your favorite position is. Uh, and you know what your favorite style of play is, and you're actually found an environment uh, where you can play in that specific position and you can play in that specific uh, style of play, you will be exposed to um, to more detailed fundamentals of your position. Those detailed fundamentals of your position, uh, cognitive-wise, uh, have nothing to do with technical abilities, but have everything to do with uh, tactical decision-making. So recognition of tactical situations where you have to make a decision based on a couple of cues. For example, uh, if you are a center back and uh, the, the, the style of play you play is that uh, uh, your defensive line is quite high because you want to press the opponent, then uh, there will be moments that when you are responsible as a center back also for... Uh, uh, for, for making sure that the, the striker doesn't become a threat, that the striker will uh, will show. So he will uh, move towards the ball, and you have to make this decision of, am I going to follow him, or am I going to stay into my position in order to, uh, to defend the space? Um, this might be a tactical situation that may uh, happen for like 20, 30 times a game. Depends also on what kind of strike you have uh, against you, but uh, if you were, if you were able to uh, to recognize that situation at centre back where uh, where the striker makes the decision to uh, to move towards the ball, uh, you have to take into account a couple of cues in order to make your decision whether you are going to follow or not. And uh, if we're talking about those kind of tactical and cognitive uh, abilities. Uh, we are way more detailed than when we are working with younger kids, where, uh, uh, where where maybe the only thing uh, we're talking about at first is the basic principles of position play, something basic like opening up your body in order to uh, see as much uh, space and uh, information on the field as possible. So, yeah, I think uh, I think it's it's very important to get to know the player in order to understand what he actually needs in order to make his next step into the development and in order to give him the cue he has to look for uh, so he can actually train himself again uh, into recognizing those situations, uh, finding uh, the, the, the good information in order to make his decision in a proper way. Well, we really do appreciate you coming on the show. You've, you've got so many good insights and and it's no wonder that uh you are uh heading literally around the globe to uh to new zealand to work <laughs> as a, a coaching methodology you can hear it. It, it 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 just comes out of you naturally when you're talking about the game and um i i enjoyed getting to meet you in in denmark watching your your teams play uh talking with you uh behind the scenes uh as well uh, about about football and and on the field off the field etc and, uh, and and really wanted to have you on the show to to talk about some of that and uh, and really do appreciate that it, 
if people wanted to connect with you online, uh, whether that's Twitter, Instagram, you know, what, whatever, uh, how, how could they get in touch with you? Um, well, uh, I, I, I have a LinkedIn account. I have Twitter. I have, um, um, I think Twitter and, and LinkedIn are the easiest ways to, uh, to, um, to get to me. And well, my LinkedIn is just my, my, my full name, Michiel Buursma. Uh, and, uh, and on Instagram, I are on, uh, on Twitter. I think it's like, um, uh, my first letter M, uh, Buursma. So yeah, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn will be the easiest ways to get to me. Well, we appreciate you joining the show. Thanks so much uh, for, for joining us. And we look forward to uh, chatting with you and connecting with you uh, in the future to talk about uh, the work that you're about to begin in New Zealand and, yeah. uh, and get your thoughts on that uh, as that project gets underway. Yeah, it's going to be very exciting. I'm very curious what uh, what 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 I'm going to uh, to find out in the next couple of weeks in order to uh, to establish how uh, how I can actually contribute to their uh, their development as well. So I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for uh, for having me, uh, Daniel. It's uh, it's a pleasure. And uh, yeah, if, uh, if if someone has any questions or needs something about uh, youth development, uh, it's 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 my main. Uh, motivational driver in order to help players uh, to uh, to develop into the next step and if I can uh, can help coaches in order to achieve that then uh, I'll be happy to do that absolutely well thanks for joining us and uh, we'll be right back after this no one No man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. पहला मोपनी बच बच्चा अवस्था में रहता है मेरे मेरे क्यों कल्पना करेगा तूने कि तो आइली को बच्चा लाय मेरे शुद्ध है अथवा उन्हें लग क्लास में गया रहते हैं कि बंदी मेरा बंदा है उन्हें रूप बच्चा है एक क्लास दो क्लास तीन तीन क्लास का बच्चा है उन्हें सहारे रूप आती है और ये तो I want to be nurse. 
Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in this Tuesday, August the 27th at our new start time, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, really appreciate Mikhail spending some time with us talking through player development, positional play, methodology, philosophy, etc. Wish him all the best. Of luck down in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, as he is uh, just beginning his work down there, and uh, and I know he uh, is excited uh, about that adventure and um, and 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 it's really cool to see people chase their dreams and uh, and and chase them wherever they lead, and uh, and he's doing that so. Big thank you to him uh, for joining us, spending some time with us. It was great meeting him while we were in Europe and uh, really appreciated our chats offline while we were over there and then spending some time uh, having this conversation and interview for the show. Uh, Appreciate him spending some time with us with that as well. Um, So, you know, before we went to break and and went to that interview, I, I mentioned that the... We we're going to talk a little bit of uh, MLS, uh, which we don't do a lot of on this show, except to talk about some of the governance and um, you know issues that they have from time to time. One of the issues that they that they're having right now is uh, has to do with supporters, freedom of speech, banners, tifos, etc., and. Major League Soccer is, uh, you, you have to understand what Major League Soccer really is to understand really what is going on here. Uh, Major League Soccer is a, is, is a centrally controlled league. When a team is announced in, in a city, so for example, recently St. Louis was announced, St. Louis is not getting a, a team that is independently owned and operated. What they are getting is an ownership group that is bought into the Central League, and they get to operate a team in St. Louis. And the reason why that's such an important distinction is all of these rules come from MLS HQ. And the MLS HQ is is responsible for governing, administering the entire league. Paychecks come from the league for the players, etc. These rules are determined by the league. And as much as Major League Soccer wants to position itself and posture that it is authentic football in the way that we see authentic football around the world. You see a a Boca Juniors match, you may see a Flamingo match, you may see Roma or, you know, uh, Hertha Berlin, um, any club across the world. And you may see supporters in those, those stadiums that, you know, when, when things aren't going well, they want to call something out. If something's not going well in in the social life of the country, maybe it's something to do with the president or the government. That is an opportunity for them to express themselves. And um, on the flip side, some of the really cool moments is when they honor, you know, past players, current managers, etc. And 
this this freedom of speech, this freedom to express yourself, is not an inherent piece of Major League Soccer. It is centrally controlled. They 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 only want things to happen to a certain degree or a certain level. You have to remember that this entire first division American soccer experience is a simulation. It's a simulation. It's not real. Every team is Major League Soccer, owned and operated. Major League Soccer Dallas versus Major League Soccer Seattle. Major League Soccer Portland versus Major League Soccer New York. These are all simulations. These are not the real thing. Portland is not free to do what it wants with its supporters. It doesn't have a club policy. It has an MLS HQ policy. MLS controls that stadium on game day. And what MLS does not want is bad press. You have to understand this. And no one no one desires bad press. But clubs around the world understand one thing that is very, very different from MLS HQ. What clubs understand around the world is they may not like when the supporters and the fans cheer or chant against the president of the club or against players within the club or against the manager. They may not like and appreciate when they're calling for someone's, you know, uh, sacking someone to be fired, someone to be shipped out, let go. But they also know without their supporters, they are nothing. And this is the key difference. MLS HQ does not appreciate supporters unless they're paying customers who do things the way they want them to. They don't actually value you as supporters in the way that you think of yourself. If you are a supporter of Atlanta United or Seattle or Portland or any other franchise in this league, they do not value you as a supporter in the same way that clubs across the world value their supporters. They value you because you are keeping a seat warm and you are paying a ticket. You're paying a fee to get in to watch their MLS match. Beyond that, they don't want you to speak up. They don't want you to stand up. They don't want you to criticize or be critical. And this is what happens when you have a league that is in bed with the federation that knows that at this point, maybe not forever, but right now, they rule the roost in American soccer. So they know that if you want to support a first division team in whatever city that you live, you've got to come to them. That gives them the ability to just stifle people that want to be supporters of their franchise, to shut them down, 
to not let them speak up. MLS HQ doesn't want full-out, authentic, passionate support. They only want it up to a level, a level that they can control. And this is the key point. This is why MLS will never, ever, under its current governance and structure, ever be able to match or even compete with any league around the world. Because MLS values control over opportunity. MLS values control over access. MLS values control over expression, over freedom. If you don't think that 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 is true, if 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 you if you believe MLS, you know, ha, has every right to do what they're doing, I agree they do. They have every right to do legally what they're doing. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about what what is their worldview. Their worldview of soccer is a view that gives them power and control. And the ability to keep everyone in their place. That is their val- That is what they value most. They don't value masses, masses and masses of people supporting and chanting. Because if they had 50, 60, 70,000 in the stands and they were chanting against MLS because they were frustrated with their team, frustrated with Don Garber, whatever, MLS would rather have an empty stadium because that's something they can control because control is what they value the most. So when you look at MLS, when you think about MLS, when you think about what's going on, just remember that when they are talking about, you know, the, you know, these are our policies and et cetera, et cetera. What they're really saying is, is that what they value the most is their control. Not what you want to say, whether you're right or wrong. They don't value that. What they value is control because without that control, they lose their ability to keep everyone on the outside looking in. It's how they get franchise values. Everything for them is about control, limiting player movement so that they can limit their downside, how much they have to pay players and contracts. Everything goes back to control. When you realize that, you realize what this is all about, maintaining power and control. Thanks for watching the show. Thanks to Mihail for joining us. We will see everyone again tomorrow. Goodbye. Goodbye.